the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. One of the most comforting aspects of Christianity is knowing that we serve and we follow an all-wise God. But we can all agree that His wisdom is not just any wisdom. In fact, God's wisdom is so great, it is so superior, it is so awesome that it is actually considered foolishness by man. That's not just true because, as we're told in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, that the natural man, the unbelieving man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually appraised, but also because the focal point of God's plan of salvation, the cross, was to man at that time a symbol of shame and failure, but to God, the means of victory. In our passage this morning and next week, Paul capitalizes on this human confusion by referring to God's superior wisdom as foolishness because that is indeed how the unbelieving man sees it. And in so doing, Paul shows us that even the foolishness of God is wiser than the highest of human wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, if you would turn there with me. Verses 18 through 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be breaking up this passage over two weeks. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This morning and next week we will be looking at, for our outline, six superiorities of the wisdom of God. Six superiorities of the wisdom of God in comparison to the wisdom of man, to the wisdom of the world, to secular wisdom, status quo, society, all of that. So much so, as we will see and as we've just read, that the wisdom of God, so far superior than man, that many consider it foolishness. The first superiority of the wisdom of God is that the wisdom of God divides mankind. The wisdom of God divides mankind. Let me read for you verse 18 again, 
from which we get this point. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 18, Paul is making a distinction between two different groups of people. And these groups, these people, are divided based on what the gospel means to them. And so we understand that we're not talking about two groups among many, but that there are only two groups that exist. In other words, every single human being is either in one group or the other. So it isn't like talking about a club or a company, right? You, you join a sports club. There's a group for amateurs. There's a group for professionals, just for fun, men, women, kids, mixed, 20 and over, kids, whatever. There's 20, 30 different groups all within the same club. That's not the case in God's eyes with mankind. This isn't anything new. This isn't just today because things have gone so bad. This isn't just the Western world. This isn't just America. This is all human beings that have ever existed and will ever exist outside of Jesus Christ. There are only two groups, and everyone fits in one or another. The first group, Paul says, consists of those who are perishing. And the reason they are perishing is because they don't know the Lord. As a result, the gospel, which he refers to here as the word of the cross, emphasizing the cross, which is really the the symbol of foolishness to the Roman world back then, it is foolishness to them. Perishing means perishing. It is a, a reference to those who are on the path to destruction. Things in their own lives are getting worse and worse. Society is getting worse and worse. But we understand, ultimately, we're talking about eternal damnation, destruction. Again, the word of the cross refers to the entirety of the gospel message. And as we saw a couple weeks ago when we were in 1 Corinthians, this is speaking of the facts, the, the content of the gospel, and not the delivery. If you recall, we ended the last section with verse 17 in which Paul himself tells us that he doesn't preach with a focus on eloquence or rhetoric. And he goes so far as to say, lest I make void the cross of Christ. And now he's explaining why he has that perspective. It, regardless of how well you preach, the gospel itself the content of what you are preaching, regardless of how eloquent you are, is foolishness to the unbeliever. And just to kind of go back to what we looked at last time, the reason you have these eloquent preachers today that are filling stadiums is not because what they're saying is foolishness. In fact, what they're saying to those crowds is wise to them because they're not preaching the gospel. If you are preaching the gospel, it does not matter how well you preach it or how poorly you deliver it. It is the power to save. And should the Holy Spirit not work in that individual's heart and ears and mind, it will be foolishness, right? No matter how well you dress it up. Foolishness is still foolishness. 
I can take your wife's makeup, your favorite few items from her makeup counter, and put that lipstick and that mascara and that blush on a pig, you still will not want to kiss that pig. It doesn't matter how well it is dressed up. Understand I'm making a point about how eloquently you present the gospel to someone who deems it foolish. In reality, we know that the gospel, for those who understand it, it is not foolishness. It is not a dressed up pig. Foolishness here, the word that Paul uses is dull, stupid, nonsense. Right? We, maybe we sometimes use the word fool to kind of soften the blow when we're really saying you're an idiot. You're stupid. But that's exactly what he's saying. It's actually from the root word that means to be silly. It's the Greek word from where we get the English word moron. The gospel is moronic to the perishing. It is silly. Not silly like, oh, your kids are so silly, they're cute. But silly like how could you as an adult believe in that? It is absurd to them. And we understand that on a macro level, without the Holy Spirit, man can neither grasp nor accept the gospel. So it's foolishness to him. But on a micro level, there's more to it, as I made reference to earlier. You see, in the ancient world, to the people whom uh, Paul is writing, in that culture, the cross was disgusting. It was a symbol of Roman terror and political domination because the cross was a symbol of how badly they would defeat their enemies. And if Jesus' plan was to be the Savior of the world, then His crucifixion to society at that time symbolized His failure. It's like us putting an electric chair or gas chamber at the front of a church and saying that represents the crux of what we believe. Didn't make any sense to them. But this is only true when interpreted through human wisdom. In their perceived wisdom, the cross as a symbol of victory for these Christians was foolish. But on the other hand, the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved, Paul says. That's the other group. Again, all are either being saved or being destroyed. Being saved in the process of sanctification, those who are already justified in Christ. And there's something very important that I want you to notice here that undergirds everything we're going to see in this passage. The contrast that Paul makes between the perishing and the saved does not correspond to man's foolishness versus man's wisdom. It's man's foolishness versus God's power. Power. Now, the reason the word of the cross is the power of God for salvation is because it is in the cross that God's promises and transforming activity become operative. It is in the cross that sin and death are defeated. It is in the cross that men are being saved. It is in the cross that the the depraved become righteous. It is in the cross that enemies become children. And so for us, it is the power of God. And as repugnant as it was to ancient sensibilities and as laughable as it was to the Roman mind, 
Paul didn't just kind of sweep the crucifixion under the rug as some sort of unfortunate and unforeseen accident that was somehow redeemed by the resurrection. It wasn't the cross, oh no, but oh, good thing he was resurrected. No. It is in the very humiliation of Christ on the cross that lies the power of God for salvation. The resurrection is so important to the gospel, but the cross is the center of it. Paul understood that in the seeming weakness of Christ, God's power was actually being manifested. In contrast, let's talk about what Paul's society would have considered power. Why they didn't see the cross as power, but what their society would deem as powerful. And all of these things you'll probably notice are the same today in our society as well. For them, power was wealth, money. For them, power was status, popularity, authority, also social accolades. You could say that's the very opposite of criminal accusations and capital punishment, which is what the cross represented. So you can see why it was so foolish, especially to the Roman mind, that only reserved the cross for the lowly and the wicked, but also extolled and valued social success and achievement. This is your king, beaten, spit upon, mocked, laughed at. The very crowds that were once following him, hoping to follow him all the way to Rome, to dethrone Caesar, is there hanging on the cross, bloody, weak, being laughed at, deserted by those crowds. You see the difference, right? You wouldn't point to a homeless criminal today and say, yeah, that, that, that epitomizes success in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley. No, you'd see a, a Tesla driving by or a Ferrari driving by or see Zuckerberg on, or someone from Google on TV and say, yeah, that really epitomizes all the worldly success in this area. You see the difference here? They wanted a king. They wanted a, a military leader. They wanted a, a, a Roman emperor. They wanted someone to defeat the Romans, to extol the Jews. And there he is on a cross. Not even any money. He didn't even, he didn't even die a rich man. He didn't even leave an inheritance. It wasn't even fighting over his many mansions. He had nothing. There was no indication from that culture's perspective of success and victory. He was a vagabond. He was a straggler. Most he could do is have 12 people follow him. Look at these generals. Look at these, these senators. They have hundreds, if not thousands. He had 12 people. One betrayed him to death, and the others had no idea what he was talking about. That's not victory to them. In fact, Cicero, you may remember that name from high school, the great Roman statesman and philosopher. He was considered one of Rome's greatest orators. He said this, he said the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. In other words, one of the great, and in their eyes, the smartest Romans that ever lived said the cross should not even be something you think about. It's undignified for a Roman citizen to even mention, not let alone think about 
the word cross. That's how gross it was to them. The first superiority of the wisdom of God is that it divides mankind. The practical beauty of this is that those of us on God's side of the divide have the means, the gospel, to invite those on the other side of the divide to experience God's power for salvation. In other words, there is still hope. There's evangelism. Christ's offer is still open. Their destruction is not necessarily unavoidable. Their perspective of the cross as foolish is not a perspective that needs to be permanent. It wasn't for you. There there was a time where you were defined by Ephesians 2. You had no hope outside of Christ, outside of the promised people, uncircumcised, right? And from all intents and purposes, even some of your Christian friends thought of some of you at that time and said, they're never going to turn to Christ. I've shared the gospel. I invited them to church. They're, they're just, I'm going to keep trying, but I just don't think they'll become Christians. And yet here you are. So let's cross the divide. No pun intended. Let's preach the gospel. Let's preach the word of the cross. I mean, think about it. We are reading from Paul who lived in the in a culture in which the very heart, the very essence of Christianity was a picture of devastating defeat and stigma. That is not the case today, even among unbelievers. Today, the cross is the subject of beautiful hymns and expensive jewelry. It's not a symbol of shame. It was in Paul's day. And if the gospel was foolish to them, How much more did they consider foolish a man who dedicated his life, who had the success that they valued, but gave it all away so that he could give his life to preach such folly? But that peer pressure, that shame, that that potential embarrassment, that didn't stop him. And now with the church being 2,000 years old, the cross is no longer a symbol of shame and defeat, and yet we still struggle with having the boldness to proclaim it. They're non-Christians that wear a cross on their ears and around their neck. We must remember the divide and the eagerness and passion with which Paul and the early church threw lifelines across that divide through their evangelism. And we must continue their work today. So often today, the primary reason given by Christians for not sharing the gospel is the fear of man in some form. And here's Paul, not afraid to preach the shame that Christ endured. And yet we are afraid to preach the cross out of fear for shame that we might endure. Understand that there is a divide that splits mankind into two groups. And the two sides, the divide, is so deep so stark and yet so devastatingly simple. Preach the gospel. There's no weird hoops. There's no secret handshake. There's no amount of money. Just preach the gospel. That's it. They don't even have to figure out how to jump across the divide if they accept. 
They just pray and they're over. See, it's, it's not just great and good people, right? You, you know this. It's not just uh, we're on this side divide so we get the nice heaven and they get a lesser heaven, but still good. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about salvation versus perishing. There is salvation offered to the world. And we are the vessels. We are the mouthpieces. Because God took this symbol of shame and failure and transformed it into a symbol of love and power. Christians, do you believe that? Then preach it. Preach it. With this division created by the cross set forth as the foundation for his teaching, Paul continues with this theme of division, but with an emphasis on the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. Our second superiority of the wisdom of God is that the wisdom of God denigrates worldly wisdom. The wisdom of God denigrates worldly wisdom. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The cross is wisdom and power. Yet the wisdom and power of God are considered foolishness to the unregenerate mind. And this is no surprise and was in fact the case even in Old Testament times. To prove this, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29 verse 14, uh, which is what we have there in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 1. Isaiah 29:14. In that context in Isaiah, the Lord through his prophet Isaiah is condemning the legalistic, ritualistic religion devised by man, human wisdom. They came up with this themselves. And the context for the Corinthians was less about a religion and more about secular humanism. Regardless, the ultimate point is the same, that God destroys the wisdom of man. First, he says in this quote from Isaiah that he will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is, of course, a reference to human wisdom and wise men that would be considered wise not in God's eyes, but everyone else's. Destroy the wisdom of the wise. I don't want you to read sarcasm into God calling these people wise because he is referring to people that would be considered, by human standards, incredibly wise. And he's saying even the wisest of men, if their wisdom is not from God, are nothing The cleverness of the clever I will set aside, he goes on to say. Cleverness is a little different. It is understanding. It's the ability to see, to put two and two together. We would call it today street smarts, shrewd. Even this, he says, will be set aside. God will reject it, put it away, make it invalid. In Isaiah, the people had devised a way to worship even though their hearts were far from God. We see this all the time, right, with false religions even today. They thought that they were clever. They thought that they knew better than God. 
On the political front, if you look at that context that Israel was in, they thought they could outsmart their enemies so that they could stay safe. But in the end, their efforts led to the invasion that they were seeking to avoid. And so God points to this and says, I've destroyed your wisdom. You didn't want to obey me. You don't want to obey me and how to worship. You didn't want to follow my rules and how to be successful and victorious as a nation against potentially invading parties. Fine. Do it your own way. And they showed, he showed, that he destroyed their wisdom. It's futile. For Paul and us, we have a world around us that chooses to be their own God. Now they... They most likely wouldn't say it that way. But your your non-Christian's friends don't, I don't think they tell you that, right? Oh no, I like to worship myself. But their pursuits and their lifestyle and ultimately the rejection of the gospel show us where their hearts lie. They want to be their own God. They want to be the masters of their own universe. They assume they don't need God because they think they can make it on their own. And they, they look at what the world values. They look at their success. They look at their happiness. They look at their, their apartment or even their house. I don't, I don't need God. And here's the thing. With all human wisdom, wisdom and cleverness comes arrogance. Even those who are the brightest in the fields of science, for example, so often use what they study to deny the existence of God. Yet what they study cannot be truly explained outside of an all-wise creator. They deny Him, not because they have proof of a big bang creating the intricacies of life down to the smallest minutiae. It's simply pride in one's own intelligence. And this God destroys by the true wisdom of His character and salvation plan. This is nothing new to God. Throughout history, man has proudly believed that their wisdom is superior to God's ways. Even in the midst of being led by God after a miraculous deliverance from Egypt, they thought they knew better. Oh, where's Moses? Let's make an idol. And as Aaron claimed, oh, the golden calf just popped out of the fire. We see the same thing today. Even in this room, many of you can attest to the futility of man's wisdom in comparison to God's. Growing up in the church, some of you then walking away for a time, living in rebellion against parents and against God and church, only to to realize the destructiveness or futility or both of living a life apart from Him. Even those of us thriving in our relationships with Him realize how foolish our behavior and actions are when we turn away from His Word in disobedience. Here's the bottom line. Don't try to match wits with God. You will fail. But don't we do that all the time? Say, no, not really. Sure you do. Sure, I do. Every time you question a principle or a command in Scripture, every time you choose to feed your flesh and sin rather than discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, whether it's greed, pride, anger, lust, whatever, every time you turn to secular psychology rather than the Word of God, 
aren't you saying that your own wisdom or the wisdom of the world is at least at the same level, if not greater, than the wisdom of God? When you pursue your way or the world's way? Oh, Roger, when you put it like that, it sounds horrible. Not as horrible as our actions declare. As we move on to verse 20, we see an almost mocking inquiry into the worldly wise. He questions the presence and prominence of three different types of people that would be considered wise in society. He says, where is the wise man? In ancient Israel, these would be mediums and wizards. A good example would be Pharaoh's wise men. They're sorcerers and magicians that are mentioned in Exodus. Remember, they were somehow able to reproduce a couple of the, the miracles that God performed through Moses. But in the end, when the boils came, they couldn't even stand, Exodus says, they couldn't even stand before Moses because of the pain. In Paul's day, the wise man would be the great thinkers and the philosophers of ancient Greece. Then he goes on and he says, where is the scribe? When the Assyrians conquered Israel, a reference to that invasion I uh, spoke of earlier from Isaiah 29, they actually sent scribes, not military men, scribes along with the soldiers to keep account of all of the spoils of war, to write down everything that they were taking from Israel. Ultimately, God would crush them to the point that he says in Isaiah 33:18 of those scribes your heart will meditate on terror where is he who counts where is he who weighs they would weigh the gold and all the valuables where is he who counts the towers in fact some believe Paul is paraphrasing that very verse Isaiah 33:18 here in 1 Corinthians 1:20 he destroys them and in Paul's day these would be the, the Jewish scholar, the rabbis, the teachers of the law. If you have the NIV, it actually uh, translates this word, the scribe, as scholar. Then he goes on to this third group. Where is the debater of this age? Uh, there's no Old Testament counterpart that we know of for debater. Before Paul's time, this would, would be the philosopher, right, who would, who would debate other philosophers on the meaning of life and things like that. And with his fourth question, he answers the first three. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Understand, these are, these are people that he's just mentioned that, that people would follow. Right? We see this in the Gospels, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, these are the people were following them. They were obeying them. These are the people who, whose books we would have on our shelves, whose books we would be required to buy in college for a ridiculous amount of money, right? Famous people who are uh, filling filling up uh, meeting rooms and, and big auditoriums because they're giving a TED Talk or giving a speech. These are the smart people that the world extols and looks to and says, teach me, make me better, change my life. And God says he has made them foolish. To make foolish also means to consider as nonsense. To make dumb. Could you imagine this? 
Someone who is, who is considered one of the, the smartest people, the greatest authors in our day and age. Thousands of testimonies have changed lives and God says, you're just dumb. Can you imagine that? Right? All the security, all these people hanging on every word, all these reporters. And in the crowd you hear, ah, dummy. Who's that? It's God. It's foolish. These people are, are foolish in comparison. Now, now, when he says he's made foolish the wisdom of the world, this is not a reference to any one or even these past three philosophical systems, but all the wisdom of the world. And the word wisdom of the world, again, is not so much a system of thought, but an attitude that is characterized by pride. Remember that word hubris? That would be fitting here. The style of life, this style of life, is epitomized by these three mentioned categories as those would be perceived as the smartest, the wisest, the experts of their day. And even in their expertise, they are limited to the partial knowledge of finite man. Add to that the susceptibility of self-deceit and the obsession with status, and you have a vile combination. Because of the onset of such blindness, this wisdom is opposed to God. It seeks salvation only in that which condemns. But in one fell swoop, the cross did what human wisdom failed to do. And what's more, the gospel is impenetrable to human wisdom. It doesn't meet the desires of man, which is solid evidence and sound reasoning. It is just truth and faith. And so the wisdom of God is deemed foolish by man. But the irony lies in the fact that it is with this so-called foolishness that human wisdom has been made useless. To be clear, Paul is not rejecting this kind of wisdom because it is wisdom, but because it is worldly. It's that defining characteristic that it is worldly that this kind of wisdom is shown to have the focus on the wrong attitudes and behavior in the pursuit of wisdom and even the end goal. Think about it. If your goal is self-glorification and feeding your ego, then you will not submit to a wisdom that says someone did it all for you. You won't submit to a wisdom that says you have nothing to brag about in regards to your own accomplishments, that symbol foolishness accomplished it for you. And if you just want to glorify yourself and feed your ego, you're not going to follow wisdom that says there is, in fact, a higher power that you need to submit to in every thought, word, and deed. Worldly wisdom at its core is flawed because at its core is self. Now understand that there are things, we're not saying ditch math and ignore your doctor. This is not what we're talking about. Ultimately, we're talking about the wrong attitude that rejects God. God has given us, us much by way of science and nature 
that helps us be the kind of people he wants us to be, to live long and prosper, if you will, so that we can serve him, so that we can worship him. But here's the problem. We take that as Christians and we sprinkle in a few dashes and then we start pouring in worldly wisdom that God has given us all our gifts, all our talents, every nickel in our bank account. And then we borrow from worldly wisdom and say, I'm going to use that for myself. That's not why God gave it to you. Does he want you to enjoy life? Sure. Does he, does he want you to have a roof over your head and a car to get around and, and maybe some extras like a, a, the newest cell phone and, and vacations? Sure. But if you're using it all for yourself, again, for self-glorification and ego, that's almost worse than people who, it is worse than people who don't know God and follow worldly wisdom. How much worse it is, is it than people who do know God and then say, thank you for all the resources, God, now I'm going to use it the way the world does. For me and me and the third person, me. And we do that, right? And... Uh, can I, as my old pastor said, can I get in your kitchen a little bit? I don't want you to feel comfortable because you say, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm starting to share the gospel with this one guy at work. 40 hours a week, three minutes of evangelism. Looks like me, me, me to me. You see, just because you're doing spiritual things doesn't mean you are using God's resources the way He wants you to. Right? Uh, are you supporting missionaries? Are you supporting Christian organizations? Are you, are, you, are you doing Christian things with your money? With your time? With your talents? Uh, I, I believe that God is sovereign. I believe he knows that, especially in this area, a larger percentage of your income needs to go to housing and bills. It's not what we're talking about. It's not about percentage, but is, are you taking, are you scraping every last bit, every excess that God has given you? In the gray area of wants versus needs and necessities and using all of those for yourself, or are you helping other people? Are you taking the time to Netflix and chill? Or are you getting on the phone and calling people? How can I pray for you? How did that go? You mentioned this in small group. Was that today? How did your test go? Right? Or we're just ah, done with work. Got to relax now. Praise God for relaxation. I think we all need to evaluate. And you know what one of the challenges, but I also find one of the most exciting things about the Christian life is until we die or until we are raptured, we are, we are never there. Right? That can be frustrating. Right? There, there's a joke. Remember when, remember when uh, there was that term going postal? Because it seemed like at least once a year, a postal worker would go back to the, the post office and, and hurt people. And I heard a joke, and maybe it's true, is it's, you get frustrated because the mail never ends. You get through delivering one day and then you go back and then there's more mail to deliver and it just keeps coming and keeps coming. Which is probably the case with most of your jobs, right? It just gives a new project, new project. But that's the beauty 
uh, and challenge of the Christian life. And you can see it as negative or positive. You can wake up and, and shake your fist at God and say, why? I, I just want to be done with this. Why won't you help me, God? Or you can wake up every morning and go, there's more sin I can repent of today to God's glory. I can spend more time and energy and thought and money advancing the kingdom of God in the world and in my life today because I'm not done yet. We're not done yet. Let's keep going. That's wonderful. I get it's different at work, right? More work, same pay. It doesn't seem to make sense, but you get to. You get to, even by looking at your own life, even by just waking up in the morning, looking in the mirror and saying, I need to change this today. One small thing. doesn't even involve anyone else, and you can glorify the king of the world, the creator. Isn't that not a privilege? I mean, some of us, I can't do it, I'll hurt myself, but do that, you know, you jump and click your heels because you, you found out that the boss knows your name and I get to make him, I get to make him happy, I get to please him. But the creator of the universe, <laughs> we get to do that every day. Are you getting frustrated with what I'm saying right now? Are you getting annoyed? All you need to do is tell your mind to stop and you've just glorified the God in heaven. That's it. Do you get the amazing privilege that we have? And the world says it's foolish. Another thing I want to point out is that we're not talking about a a, a difference in wisdom in terms of man's wisdom is somehow if we just change our perspective or whatever, we can achieve God's wisdom. God's wisdom is not just a different level. It's just in a completely, it's not on the same scale, right? It's a a completely different universe. Like I wanted to give you an analogy, which I'm going to give you, but it still doesn't fit. The comparison between man's wisdom and God's wisdom is when my three-year-old son sees me eating vegetables, sitting down at the table, and then putting my plate at the sink when I'm done. And he sees me and is like, why would you do that? Just eat candy and then throw the plate on the floor. Why? That's just foolish. Why would you spend time eating yucky things? And instead of playing or spending time getting more candy, you would put away your dishes. That's so foolish. That's idiotic. That's stupid. But we're adults, and we know not eating vegetables has daily and long-term ramifications. And if I just throw my plate on the floor, I'm going to have to buy a new one or clean that up later, right? And even harder because i got to scrape the dry sauce or whatever off the floor. You get what I'm saying? It's not foolishness to us. Foolishness would be what they're doing. And so now you see the difference. And the reason that analogy falls short is because one day my three-year-old will grow up and he will realize that that was foolish to think that he could eat candy and not put away his dishes. We cannot attain to the wisdom of God. But we can partake of the wisdom of God, which we already have through His Spirit, through the faith that He has gifted us in salvation.
Well, we've seen two of the six superior superiorities of the wisdom of God. And again, this isn't an in- issue of superior versus inferior, right? I just explained that. It's not like comparing Einstein's smarts to my smarts. No, it's just it's a whole different world altogether. In fact, compared to God's wisdom, man's wisdom isn't just inferior. Man's wisdom is not wisdom at all. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. And hallelujah, amen. Praise him for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to know you. What a privilege it is to be among your elect that we might know the wisdom of God and see the foolishness of the pursuits of mankind. Help us to be those who rejoice in the daily struggle and desire and ability to honor and glorify you. Help us to recognize and see where the worldly wisdom may be infiltrating our spirituality and our pursuits. And may we take which can be turned spiritual and holy and good and use it for your glory and reject that which is sinful, selfish, and egotistical. Help us in our daily sanctification. Help us in our pursuit of holiness. Help us in our desire to worship you and our proactive engagement with the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.